You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Growing plants can be hard. Why does one plant thrive in your garden when an identical one bought at the same time from the same nursery struggles in another part of the garden? Our gardens are full of microclimates. We can make the conditions more favourable with protected growing and Guy Deakins is the perfect guest to explain this topic to us. He's a UK horticulturist, business owner and writer among many other talents. He comes from a long line of garden designers and horticulturists since at least the Victorian era and I particularly like his latest book titled Gardener's Guide to Protected Growing which inspired the questions in this episode. G'day, Guy. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So can you define the term climate and also the term microclimate for us, please? Um, yeah, climate is, is a general term um, for a, a, a large area. So um, you get a, a, a temperate climate, tropical climate, um there's there's differences in all obviously um depending on where you are on the planet um for example the uk has got a, a for, for its latitude it's got an incredibly mild climate um it's on the same level as kamchatka so it should be sort of minus 60 in the winter um but it, it doesn't it rarely gets below minus 10 um at the moment with with climate change it's starting to heat up we're still in um la nina so it's it's gonna sort of top 30 35 this year but according to climate scientists it's gonna start racing away next year when el nino kicks in um because of the residual temperatures in the sea um but a microclimate is very much more localized to the extent that a microclimate can be down to just your your small garden space or your um, your farm space, it depends. You know, it, it it's very much depends on what the the shelter is, what the terrain is, um, what the prevailing wind is, what the prevailing um, temperature and season is. Does that make sense? Right, so like Melbourne has its own climate, and then yeah. this room that I'm sitting in right now, this is this is a microclimate. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So it's it's it 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 really is. It it can go very 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 small. You know, an insect on a leaf is in its own microclimate because mm. that particular space is hasn't got the same eddies as the next area you know if you stand in any garden and watch the the flowers being blown around in the wind you'll notice that some flowers aren't moving whereas others are um so so it becomes you know very minuscule in its approach but from our perspective that doesn't really make much difference so um from a microclimate point of view you want the best you, you can't approach each plant individually in that sense for your garden or for your space. You have to look at it from a generalist point of view, but you know, it's, it's all, it's all working out the balance. 
Hmm. So my next question is, how does wind affect plant health and how can microclimates change the wind conditions for better or worse? Um, well, it's interesting, actually. It, it, wind is quite desiccating. Um, it, it removes moisture from the air, removes moisture from the plant. So if a plant is expiring, um, it, it will lose that water quick, quicker. Um, if it's if it's a, a hot windy day than if it's a a still day, um, and from that perspective, it will mean that that plant will require more watering. So, from a garden perspective or from a, an enclosed space perspective, if it's an if it's in a warm space with a, a um, an open window or 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 um, a reasonably strong wind, then you're going to be watering it more which is effective in the sense that um, in places with high water stress you're going to have to think about what plants are going to be viable for you um, in order to reduce that water stress at the moment california is going through a huge um, and immensely uh, important drought and um, mm. they are still insisting on using water a large scale. I mean, golf is a a, a very popular sport, um, and yet they're watering their golf greens. And this is in an area where drinking water is viable, is vitally important rather. Um, but it's becoming unviable. Um, mm. A lot of the lakes that supply the drinking water for California are, are running dry or getting close to running dry. Um, so from the future point of view, this is quite an important thing that one has to realise. Right. So we tend to have a saying on this podcast, and I'm sure you've heard it before, right plant, right place. Yeah, very much so. Um, but with, with climate change, right plant is going to be different from the plants that one assumes it, it used to be. Um, and I think we all have to start looking at it from a different perspective. Absolutely. So we're trying to plan ahead. We're not just planting what can live today. We have to actually plan ahead. As you say, there's no point in planting these trees when we're going to be hoping for them to get uh, a yield on after 30 years on their carbon, I believe they start uh, becoming carbon positive <laughs> or carbon negative rather. Um, so, you know, everything it takes to produce a tree um, after 30 years, it's starting to, to make it back again. Um, so yeah, if we want those trees to start bringing a yield back for us, we need to be thinking about what's going to last the long term. Yeah, very much so. Um, and there's something else as well, which I've only just been um, informed of, is that I, I mentioned it in the book um, that, I, that I've just written, but the, 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 there's a, I think it's, it's got various terms. North Atlantic drift, I called it in the book, but there's also uh, there's a lazy approach, which they call it the Gulf Stream, which doesn't technically reach the UK. Um, it's a, a type of conveyor belt in the North Atlantic, which um, moves warm water up through to Europe from the the um, from sort of the Gulf of Mexico, um, and then it drops down with cold water from the from the Arctic, and they're saying that's weakening. And everyone's trying to work out how that's going to affect the planet. But the latest idea is that the north 
hemisphere. This is the entire North Hemisphere is going to be affected in the sense it's going to become a lot drier. Um, and a, a large amount of the agricultural land is going to be lost. It's just going to be untenable because it can't be watered. But the opposite of that is that the South, especially in the Pacific, is going to become a lot wetter. Now, from the point of view of Australia, they're saying that that's going to make it more prone to water, uh, rain, heavy rains and heavy winds. So from your perspective, that's that's something to think about as far as planting shelter belts and, uh, and windbreaks mm. and things um, and uh, looking to the future and thinking, OK, what's going to survive this this new future? And I can I, I I remember that Brisbane keeps on getting hit with flooding, doesn't it? Now, so um, mm-hmm. that might be the future trend. Mm. And I think, in a lot of ways, understanding microclimates is another tool we have in our tool belt for building gardens that last. So before we moved on from wind, I just wanted to touch on as well, like how can we prevent wind from hurting our plants? Uh, in terms of you know maybe creating more wind or less wind, yeah, I, it's it's an interest. It depends what you're you're trying to grow. Um, some plants require a drier, arid air, um, as I wrote in my book. Things like alpines prefer a, a, a warm, dry air, um, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's it doesn't rain very much high up. It's it's cold but it's not wet if that makes sense so if you're trying to do that then you want a situation where there is air flow um and it's the same with i I was listening to one of your podcasts and and i agree that with viticulture with vines you want to reduce the amount of um fungus that's going to sit so in 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 the north of australia it's going to be more difficult to, to 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 deal with these things um, obviously because it's a lot hotter and a lot more humid um, but to reduce the amount of water that's uh, that's being lost you need to work out how where your wind direction is coming from the the the, the, the the most common area you can tell this by looking at trees and seeing the way that they're growing um, or just paying attention to the wind but you need to sort of think about how to protect that that side most so in the UK the predominant wind is the south coming from the southwest I'm not sure what the predominant wind is um, from your area uh, but I guess you get a lot coming up from the the Arctic or something uh, the Antarctic Mm. Yeah, we can do. Yeah, I used to have a job on the beach and it was quite brutal. I think we get them from a few different directions. We're a bit of a weird one here in Melbourne. Right. So you need to just you need to work out which direction without losing sunlight obviously because if you build a big tree belt or a big hedge, you're going to lose light. Um which is going to cause problems. So you need to bear in mind the light direction as well. Um and try to you can do this i mean various ways you can use a fence uh as long as you let some air through otherwise you're just Mm -hmm. going to create a stagnant environment which is going to encourage pest and disease to get into your plants 
that um, there's such a thing as a wind filter, which is a type of tree which is a lot less um, leaved, as it were. I I guess some of the gums are quite good at that. They're quite Mm. sparse. Um, In the UK, we would use something like birch, which is is quite a fine leaf plant. It's quite attractive, but it it stands up to pruning quite well. Um, And you're just trying to create an atmosphere which is um, less buffeting. So we're not trying to stop it like a brick wall. We're trying to diffuse it. Yeah, very much so. If you if you stop it, you're just going to create eddies. You're going to create a situation that um, it, it's useful if you're trying to grow things. In the UK, we use things like brick walls to grow um, soft fruits like peaches and um, apricots and things that need some protection from the wind. Uh, but I it's it's not it's a it's a great thing because we have such a varied climate here as i say going down to minus 10 it can hit fruit especially soft fruit like peaches because they flower early and they there's not many pollinating insects that exist at that time of year when they flower early for us Mm. but um, a brick wall for somewhere like Australia, I think, especially if you're looking at climate change and increasing winds, I think that would become more of a hazard than a than a than a help. I think as well. My understanding is that when wind hits a brick wall, it'll sort of like bounce over the top and then smash down against the ground, sort of a a little bit further along the line. Yeah, very much so. You you're not. You're not really preventing the wind from doing much. You're just um, giving it an opportunity to uh, to, to um, yeah to, to move a bit further, which is never <laughs> a good thing. No, it's sort of like think about it in the water as well. You know, let's say you're on a boat and you put your yeah. hand in the water, and you sort of the water wants to fight you. Whereas if you put your hand fingers apart, it's yeah. like it glides through. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, yes, that that's a perfect analogy. So let's move on to temperature now. How can microclimates change the temperature? It's an interesting one. This there's a, there's a big problem in urban areas in the the UK, which are two or three degrees higher. Say London is London's got a, a residual heat that's two or three degrees higher than 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 outside of London. Um, so today it's going to be for you a moderate 25 degree C but um, in London that will be 28, 29 maybe um, which is an issue in built up areas where you've got a high amount of car usage because the ozone then builds up Hmm. science has discovered that if you use plants with hairy leaves such as lambs is um stachys byzantium um that will actually reduce local air temperatures by a degree or two which is a fascinating concept it's, it's, it, it, it traps the air and it just reduces that that temperature which i think if you look at it on the broader picture in areas which are going to start becoming um heat stressed by planting 
things with hairy leaves, you're actively reducing the temperatures for your other plants as well as for you. Um, so you're helping mm. cool that local microclimate. Wow. And so it's the the physiological effect or the mechanical effect or whatever you call it of that leaf. It's not that particular plant. It's that type of furry leaf that does that. Yeah, it's the mechanics. I mean, maybe we should all live in furry houses. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a concept that I'm not sure anyone's thought about as yet, but it's an idea that if people look into it, I'm sure would be um, it would be an interesting uh, mm. way forward. I, I know that you watch a dog walking through on a hot day and, and they 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 struggle, you know, they sweat and things, but um, a plant doesn't seem to need that. It, it seems to have a different um, structural integrity, which, which helps it. The humid air that's leaving the stomata as well would yeah. probably be the best air out there that you want around those leaves. Yeah, I, it's, it's a fascinating um it, it's a fascinating development and i think it's something that's not from from my from what i can read it's it's not something that that is that that's that's widely um caught on i mean there's a a great movement for green walls now to try and um offset carbon so you sort of go through any envi uh, urban environment and i've spoken to architects in the uk and they they've planted green walls over their new car parks which is it, it's a lovely idea it's a bit of greenwashing um i don't think the green wall is going to offset the amount of cars that are going in and out of the car park every day but they do have some effect on on the space but as i've noticed that there, there isn't enough of these type of plants in those green walls there's a lot of sedums there's a lot of ivy there's a lot of ferns but there isn't enough of these particular plants which um specifically reduce temperatures mm. and um for a garden from a from a garden point of view to to include that in 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 your fence line or hedge line would be fascinating and i haven't tried it as yet um i i was trying to talk to a designer recently about installing um a fence with pockets but because it's such a new concept the 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 pricing was prohibitive so it was not taken up but i think from that perspective you know to to, to grow uh that kind of plant on a on a on large scale on a fence but letting the air flow through would be would be would be a, a great concept hmm. And even the color of your garden too. Like I saw on LinkedIn recently, one particular wholesale nursery was spraying their whole setup white because that was going to cool everything down and they'd also get more light as well. And I suppose if you put your plant next to a mirror, that's going to heat things up when the sun hits that mirror as well. Yeah, very much so. There's, there's a fascinating uh, debate going on online at the moment about cooling the planet um and how much energy we need to actually use in order to move forward into a into this new world where we're trying to keep below the the two degrees c um that we're now heading towards and 
there is some thought of, of, of building solar reflectors to, to, to try and reflect the, the sun back into space. <laughs> the problem with that is if we're going to increase our cloud cover or if we have a spectacular volcanic eruption like happened last year in the, in the South Pacific, that's going to increase cloud cover. So we're just going to be bouncing it back on ourselves. Um, and to paint things white is it is it an interesting thing as well. I mean, I don't don't know if you heard they found plastic in in the Antarctic now, which is starting to reflect or absorb heat rather absorb the heat in in this in the uh, ice, which is further increasing ice melt. So we have to think of all these things in order to try and mitigate what we're actually doing. So what about water and humidity as well? Like how can microclimates be affected by water and humidity? Well, this is an interesting one. Um, if, you, if you've designed your garden well or your space well for that specific genera of plants say alpine plants then you want to have a specific water intake you don't want it too humid so if you are going to try and grow alpines in the subtropics you're going to try and design a space which is allowing as much light as possible but not having very humid atmosphere where the plants will rot off if they have too much humidity if you're just going for a, a basic garden in the open air you again you want it to be um, as well managed as possible which is where you're introducing um, things like mulches but it's it's it's, it's all a matter of how you're your soil structures. I've been doing some research on your Australian soils because it's entirely different from the ones that we have up in in the UK. And and you've got a large proportion of your soils are not particularly brilliant for growing. You've got tennisols, <laughs> tennisols which are poor, low low fertility, and they have a problem with water retention. Um, soda soils which are um, high in salts and low in potassiums, calcium and nitrates um, there's, I found a web, wonderful website called eaglerisefarm.com.au which talks about the ruder soils on, on their land um, and it's, it's you, you do have some, you have about um, from what I can understand, you've probably got about, um, let's have a look, 11% black vertisol, which is good for agriculture, 3% red chromosol, which is excellent, loamy, loamy soil on clay, but, but it's all showing signs of stress and, and fatigue. And in order to keep water retention in the soil, you need to keep adding, adding mulch and adding um structure to that soil um and that will help keep water retention and 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 keep things healthier but from an air point of view again it's going back to what you're doing with your 
your hedge or your shelter belt. Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. So let's say we have sandy soil because because yeah. soil plays into everything. So of course it's going to play into water. Yeah. You've got sandy soil and it's receiving a lot of water. That water is going to be probably evaporating quickly. So you're probably going to get more humidity, but less water in the soil. If you've got clay, it's going to sit there and be wet all the time. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah. And even if you only have a little bit of water in the clay, it's still going to stay wet. So you're not going to want those alpine plants in a wet clay environment. Yeah, very much so. And, and also you have to look at it from the point of view of what the substructure is. So um, from the point of view of, view of the soda soles that you've got, there is a, um, a subsurface pan, which is basically an impenetrable layer where there is a salt buildup and the water doesn't drain properly and it's got a problem with, with drainage. So from that perspective you are you have to think is it worth planting in that soil or is, is it better to actually raise have raised beds or have raised areas um in order to to, to offset that um and the, then you've got the opportunity of introducing good soil to those areas where you can you know that you can plant things that aren't specific to that soil because i from from my understanding of of, I know that there's a big movement in Australia for just keeping plants um, indigenous and not introducing more and more plants. I think that we've got a problem in the UK that we've introduced too many plants, hmm. um, but we've become very lazy. In Australia, I can understand that you're trying to keep your indigenous plants more with introducing um, new things. So you do have the option of planting plants that will work in that environment, but it reduces your palate to some extent. Um, yeah. So you, you it, in, in poor soils, you can in, increase the, the water retention and the, the, the life of that soil by adding um, things like manures and things. But as I say in my book, each manure has a different pH. Each manure has a different, um structure and you have to think about these things as far as as wide as uh, as far as the wider biodiversity goes absolutely so guy we touched on light a little bit when we talked about temperature but how can light specifically change within a growing environment in a microclimate okay right well uh, as i said earlier if you plant a hedge um that's in the wrong space you are going to cause um light reduction so from the point of view of your summer the height of your summer that the the sun is going across your northern horizon mm. and you don't really want to plant a hedge in on that basis for, on that on that um trajectory because it's going to create issues with what you can grow under that not only is that that hedge going to um steal nutrient to some extent but it's also going to rob light so you then have to think right okay if i'm planting that there then everything underneath that that line is going to have to be adapted for semi-shade or full shade hmm. And the same goes for if you are 
thinking of planting in full sun, depending on what time of year it is, that sun is going to be a lot hotter and a lot stronger. Mm. Um, and there's something as well which I think people forget, and I'm I'm constantly asked by clients to do the impossible. One of the favourites is to plant to plant um, a lawn underneath a tree, which will get sun. It will get sun in the in the summer, and that's fine, and the the grass will be happy. But as soon as winter comes, the grass rots off because it never gets the sun, and it just gets rained on. It just drip, drip, drip. Um, and and it's this cycle that I see happening a lot. So it's, it's something that you need to be aware of that that gardens aren't just one season. So true. And and the same as the light. The light isn't just one season. It's not constant. I mean, if you're in the equator, then it is. But um, then you've got the, the the situation where the sun comes up at the same time and goes down at the same time. There's no difference to that. So let's say uh, if you have a veggie garden and there's one corner that's shaded out for part or all of the year or part or all of the day, you plant yeah. accordingly. So you're going to plant your leafy greens in the shade and you're going to plant your fruiting vegetables in the sun. Yeah, there is. there are things, you know, that I've, I've, I've read that raspberries and things in the UK, they will grow happily in the shade. However, if you want them to be sweet, then you need them in the sun because hmm. they need the sugars being cooked um, in order for them to be sweeter. Otherwise, you get a very watery, flavourless fruit. There are plants out there. If you if you're growing a veg garden, there are um, more and more plants being introduced into the seed market, which are adept at growing in in conditions that you have. And there are more and more plants that are coming back into circulation, which man, for whatever reason, decided weren't particularly popular. I think in the UK there's a there's a, a plant. Um, called goutweed it was called goutweed because the monks used to grow it as a, a, a herb to try and alleviate their gout because notoriously monks liked to drink a bit um and that will grow quite happily in the shade just be aware it's incredibly invasive and it will spread by rhizomes and it is once you've got it it's uh, there was a very 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 rude word that the farmers used to call it because they tried to grow it on an agricultural scale and then discovered that it was this incredibly invasive weed. It tastes okay. It's edible. Right. Um, so there are plants out there that you can grow um, that will sit in more or less any, any um, situation that you can think of, but you just have to be aware of, of their cultivation and what they can do and obviously you don't want to be introducing such a thing as as goutweed or ground elder into your garden especially in areas of conservation or or um rare habitat mm -hmm. so i guess our microclimates are not only just going to affect our plants right they're also going to affect all of the ecology pests predators none of the above very much so. You, it, it, the idea is to create an environment that works for your situation. 
and your garden idea. But at the same time, you have to be aware that if you are in the U in the UK, um, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but there is a plant which we call box boxes. Yeah, we've got them. Yeah, we've got we've trust me, we've got them. <laughs> we we uh, everyone's obsessed by them because they're really easy to clip. They become balls and topiary and um, lovely hedges and formal gardens and. You see them everywhere, and I've had clients that say, "Oh, I love the London effect," and they will grow hydrangea, Annabelle, and box in their gardens, and that's their thing. And it and it because it's worked somewhere else. The only problem is that there's two types of blight and a moth, <laughs> and the but both types of blight. One is one is okay; it just affects it slightly. The other one is absolutely disastrous, and both of them are now immune to all our fungicides. Um, and the the box moth just absolutely devastates box. So you have to sort of introduce nematodes into the box, but you have to do it at at right time at the right angle, and you keep on having to. And it's because we've overused the one plant to the extent where we've we've encouraged these funguses, which are natural occurring, um, naturally occurring. But because we've done so much of this same thing you end up with this problem because we've just basically said, there you go, you know, make yourself happy, eat as much as you want. And we've done, you know, it's it's the same as monocropping in in agriculture where you go for the same wheat all the time or the same rice all the time. You're going to introduce um, an environment where one particular pathogen will say thank you very much i'll have that and it's the same with potatoes it's the same with i think there's a tomato virus going on at the moment which that i know is in is it it's in israel and it's in another country and they are desperately trying to contain it because if it if it gets out into the wider environment it's going to absolutely devastate all the tomatoes globally mm. um so from the garden perspective you have to be really thoughtful as to what you are doing and what you are creating and 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 one way to mitigate that is to think okay i want to build something that's going to help encourage the predator species um i know that in australia you've got slightly more dangerous animals than we have in the uk i think we've we've got the adder which can kill a, a west highland terrier but it won't won't harm a human in that way and i know you've got sort of a, a plethora of insects and 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 vertebrae that uh, vertebrates that will um <laughs> do a lot more damage than that we even got trees that'll try and kill you we've got the wait a while that sits in the scrub yeah. and waits you to walk past it and then tries to yeah tries to drag you into the scrub yeah it's um it's a it's an interesting consonant um but at the same time you have to think i know that there's they, they discovered there's a white back spider in australia which is too small to harm humans but it hunts red backs there you go ipm yeah so you know it's about natural balance um it's about thinking things in the uk we we grow wood pile we we put we put in wood piles to encourage overwintering um predatory insects i know that in in australia you wouldn't want that so much because you just end up encouraging things like red backs <laughs> um but it's it's about 
it's about really researching the local flora and fauna and looking at balance and by creating a monoculture in your garden by obsessing about having this box box you know um garden filled with the same plant it's a beautiful a beautiful artistic concept uh it's, it's sort of a, a mark rothko in the garden but it doesn't work because nature will always say okay well, you're giving me that option then i'm going to give you this one option as a <laughs> as a pest and and then you'll be struggling absolutely so let's say as well microclimates you might have um dense shrubbery that's gonna house one type of insect and then you've got you know let's say we've got a little pond well so this other insect fl- flying insects especially like that um then yeah. let's say uh, in the microclimate also, you've got pebbles. So one insect likes that. You've got sand and other insect likes that. Clay, other insects like that. So, yeah. and, and, you know, whether you've got a lot of organic matter or not. So there's just so many different ways that we can affect the biodiversity in our gardens through microclimate management. Is that a term? Did I just coin that? I think you did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done. It's now in the in lexicon of the human language. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I think... <laughs> You have to, um, you have to really. I, I, I find that a lot of the time with gardening, people get very frustrated and very scared by it because once they dip their fingers into it or their toes into it, rather, they they realise that it's a lot more complex than just p- putting a plant in, and they start pulling their hair out and they give up. Um, yep. But if you look at it from the point of view of that, not only are you helping your native flora and fauna in in a, in a lot of ways you're you're adding to the to the biodiversity of that space and you're at, you're aiding um a process which we've really sort of managed to try and uh, tried our best to strangle in in many ways by by just being very formal or very um lackadaisical with with our approach to gardening and it's it's something of beauty when you start seeing birds and 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 plants coming back into your garden which are naturally inclined to be part of that garden space but we've removed that opportunity from them and then it becomes a natural balance and i think that's a brilliant um thing to see mm-hmm. totally agree so Let's move on to some of the different types of protected growing areas now. So I guess as gardeners, we don't just wait for nature to provide us with the, the, with the things that we need. We actually go out and do it ourselves. So we're going to create some protected growing areas, a.k.a. Yeah, yeah. microclimates. Uh-huh. We have actually covered shelter belts with Dr. Ian Smith in episode 64, but can you briefly remind us what a shelter belt is? Okay, so... From a, it depends on your size of garden. I work in a lot of gardens which are large, so you're sort of looking at. I think the biggest garden I work in is eleven acres. And effectively, what you're trying to do is you're trying to introduce a situation where you are protecting whatever's inside that garden from external influences, say bad rain um storms or uh, bad wind or um, anything that's going to create um 
damage within that garden. If if you allow your garden to become open to the elements in in a way that you're going to encourage pest and disease to come in when you're pruning a plant you 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 the first thing you do is look for the the damage to the, the diseased and the die and the dead or the dying and then you prune those out because that's a an issue in the uk we have an issue that um from about august traditionally traditionally august, august onwards to sort of it's now coming to march you you get storms coming from the west off the atlantic and they will be quite destructive um and as global climate change uh, pushes on it's getting more and more evident you know once in a hundred year storms happen every couple of years now so from a shelter belt perspective you are trying to introduce um a space that is protecting your carefully coffered lawns and and designed beds from the worst of those storms and those those um inclement times so you were saying earlier that you get a lot coming up from the and and antarctic so your primary goal in those times is to try and slow that down rather than break it uh, rather than block it you're trying to slow it down you're trying to alleviate that pressure in your microclimate and you can do that various ways so you can plant a a, a, a row of trees and then a, a row of hedging plants and then something else like an orchard and the wider that belt is the, the more filtered that that wind becomes and that rain becomes um so that your favorite space is is less damaged and you can then experiment with some more delicate plants from an agricultural point of view you're trying to protect your fruiting plants absolutely i should have mentioned earlier uh we should have really talked about soil too to be honest because soil uh is part of a microclimate and going back to the winds coming off the bay they're very salty so you need to be careful what you plant there so you know, some she oaks is a pretty good idea. Some casuarinas, something that can withstand that salty environment. Oh yeah, I think the, the 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 beautiful thing about having a garden in that respect, and despite me saying earlier that you're trying to encourage your local flora and fauna, you can introduce plants from across the globe which live in the same situation. So from um, your perspective you could probably grow things like grizzolina literalis which is uh, from new zealand and that will take salt quite happily um and it's a great blocking um hedge and it, it will grow into quite a beautiful tree as well and and from the soil perspective if you allow that wind or that rain um, constant access to your space the soil will become eroded and I know that across the globe there is a real issue with soil being degraded because we've opened up the spaces so much we've grubbed out the hedges I think in the 1970s and 1960s in the UK farmers were paid a lot of money to grub out all their old hedges and they've ended up with these huge monocrop fields but the problem is that the soil's degrading so rapidly because the wind's just 
shearing off the top level of, of, of soil. So they're now being paid to plant those hedges back in again. So the fields get smaller, but they're actually more sustained. And it's the same with your garden. If you don't, if you live on an exposed um, coastal area, your your garden is going to be buffeted. And especially if you're on something like sandstone, that sandstone is going to become very, very um, dry as well as um, the, the most fertile top portion of it is going to disappear in the wind. And I should have mentioned too, it's not just the soil. The salt does get on the leaves too, which isn't good for plant health um, because they do absorb a lot through the leaves. No, as you said earlier, plants, the right plants for the right places. There are, um, you know, there are great plants that you have in Australia. And I know that we grow some of them in the UK. Um, if we're allowed or if we, we have the right conditions in the UK, we grow plants in greenhouses because we don't, we have that temperature variation um and yeah if you are living on the coast then there are i'm sure uh, there's a a fantastic book by um Anne kelway which was um which i mentioned in my book which is um just specifically seaside plants and seaside planting and it's 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 key to actually understand your space and it's key to understand what the conditions are as i say all year round so you can't grow delicate plants on a seaside environment if you know if that high saline content is is constantly buffeting those plants because they are going to get burnt they are going to struggle to survive in that environment and it's the same as growing a subtropical plant or a tropical plant in a, in a place, you know, up in the, in the, in the blue mountains or something, it's just not going to like it. Well, we try our best in Melbourne. I'll tell you that we love a good <laughs> tropical plant in Melbourne. Shout out to Christian Jenkins, who won the people's choice award at the Melbourne international flower and garden show recently. Um, but let's move on to shade houses. Is that an Australian yeah. thing or do you guys have them over there as well? No, we, we do have them. We're not so, um, it's not something that people do so much. There are people that love ferns and ferns don't like direct sunlight. And there are people that have uh, installed shade houses um, and they're a beautiful thing to behold. But I think the UK, because our weather is so um Generally inclement, I would describe it. It's, it's, it's sort of, you know, we, we've got a week of, of sunshine this week and everyone's got their barbecues out and they're saying, eh, the summer's here. And and then the weather next week is going to be storms again. And that's typical English. So we kind of more go for having things that are reminding us of warm climate. So we have things like greenhouses to encourage growing more tropical fruits and more tropical flowers and plants i think it, it, it becomes this great challenge that we can achieve this this wonderful aim of of growing um rare orchids and shade houses are not so common i've i've seen a few and I think it's something that we're going to have to uh, think about more and more as the temps warm up 
Um, and it's mm. something that I notice people don't really understand either because in the greenhouses, because they're made of glass, they are going to make plants grow brilliantly, but they're also going to enhance the sun's power. And a lot of the plants that I see in greenhouses are burnt. They, they've reacted to the sun's strength and they've introduced a chemical into their leaf which makes their leaves go brown and um it you know that effectively that leaf is dead and so from a shade shade house point of view i think it's it's an, an interesting concept which from a uk point of view we haven't quite explored in all its glory yet but i can understand its concept and i can understand why you have them in australia yeah, certainly. I think in parts of Australia, we definitely need them. So I guess the concept here is, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand the difference between a greenhouse and a shade house. Um, you know, there are all these different sort of terms and we're going to go over a few of them. I guess a greenhouse mm. is made of glass. A shade house is usually made of netting or something like that that's going to reduce the sun rather than amplify it. Yeah. The thing that I would say, the one thing that I will say about any form of netting or any form of 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 um glass house greenhouse um made of polyurethane or whatever i mean they they're all going to increase temperatures uh in an experiment um i was dealing with someone on a, a, a an allotment a growing space that i was involved with we were putting different nettings down over some plants to protect them from the birds and we were taking temperatures underneath that netting and it does raise the temperature. So it's an, it's an important thing to remember that you are, if it's not done properly um, and if it's not done carefully, you are going to introduce um, a different microclimate again, which is going to, from the UK point of view, that's great. You're, you're warming the soil earlier, but in hot climates, in hot climate, you may be introducing more stagnant air, less airflow. So it's very important for you to think about netting or slatting, uh, you know, wooden slats if you're going to build a permanent structure um, that's going to allow airflow and air movement. And a lot of the shade netting that I know is made either green or, or black plastic, that's, you know, black plastic in itself is, is going to warm the air. Absolutely. Have you ever sat underneath a tarp in the sun before? Because yeah. <laughs> it gets pretty yeah, hot. <laughs> I, did, I, I did some work out in Japan for the uh, World Cup, and I, I worked with a lot of Australians out there. And uh, yeah, it was absolutely boiling. And and they actually they taught me a lot about how to cool things down. Um, so they introduced they put on the um, the 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 wagon that had all the uh, the TV infrastructure for transmission, they put a, another tarp on top of that wagon in order to create the, the effect of wind going through and, and air, an air tunnel. Um, and it cooled it down inside by a number of degrees. So you have to, you have to think about these things and this is all part of the, the joy of gardening. I know it's, I know it's a struggle to say, Oh no, not another thing that I have to think about, but it's a beautiful thing once you get it right. And to be able to, to really um, perfect that space and to say this is my space and I've done this much effort and put this much love into it 
to actually get to that point of sitting underneath that shade and think, right, I'm actually cooler here than, than anywhere else, then, um, you know, mm-hmm. that's a brilliant achievement. Absolutely. Not to mention, you know, you can sit here and you said, okay, well, it's another thing we have to learn. Yeah, I know it can feel like that sometimes, but we've been fighting these pests for so long now. Why don't we just put up a greenhouse or a shade house and just keep them out? Because greenhouses and shade houses can also do that. They can also keep pests out of our gardens. They, well, they can do, but once once the, <laughs> once, once the pest gets in there, you've got major problems, you know? Um, and we are trying to reduce... I, I was listening to a few of your podcasts and, 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 and your contributors were saying things like, oh, you can put glyphosate down and you can do this and you can do that. Um, and I was, I, there was a, a farmer I was reading yesterday, was he, he had emailed um, a chemical lab to say, can you please just develop a plant which is immune to the, the pesticides that we need to use to get rid of the pests? <laughs> and I, I kind of thought this is ridiculous because if you look into that that pesticide it we, we are discovering that these things these chemicals that we've been using for the best part of a, half a century or maybe a century they're they're actually causing us a lot of damage they're causing us um cancers i had uh, a brush with bladder cancer last year and um it's the third most common cancer in in europe and yeah, it's never talked about because it's it's down there, and no one wants to talk about the embarrassing cancers. And um, it's caused by pesticide residue on food, diesel fumes, and smoking. And I don't smoke. I have driven a diesel van for a while, but it you know not for as not 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 for the length of time that you need that build up. Um, and you think, right, okay, so there's this farmer saying, let's spray all our crops with this pesticide to get rid of these pests, which are probably going to get, become immune to that pesticide anyway. Um, and, and we're doing it just for a short-term gain. So from the same point of view, to have these great shade houses to keep the pests out, they're, they're, they're fantastic, but it's not actually... You know, we're, we're having to now go to scientists and say, can you please um, develop a species of, of, of uh, or research a species of wasp that I can release in my greenhouse or my shade house that's going to get rid of this pest? And you have this constant battle. And it it's a lot better to actually be able to do that, to be able to introduce uh, a pest a predator species to that space, but then you're creating another imbalance because if that predator species gets out into the wider environment and you haven't researched what it's going to do, then you've got a real issue. There's a um, a problem with, uh, I don't, don't know if you've got it in Australia, Japanese knotweed. Uh, rings a bell. Let me Google it. Yeah, well, it was introduced in the UK um, as a beautiful, it's a kind of bamboo shrub with broad leaves. And um, it's an absolute pain. It'll go through concrete. It undermines house um, structures. Uh, it's it's a real thug of a plant. And um, when it was introduced, it, it is actually a very beautiful plant, but it's just this thug. And it the problem is that one tiny leaf 
if it fall, you know, if it gets cut and it goes into the mower and it goes and the mower goes along a bit and that leaf falls off and it finds the right growing conditions, it will it will grow into another plant. So it's now illegal in the UK to move it or to kill it or to do anything with it unless you're licensed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, we we were... The, the scientists have found a moth that naturally attacks it. And they've taken 20 years to research it in order to be able to get to the stage where they're going to... They've released it now because they said, OK, we don't think it's going to attack any other plant. So that's the level of danger that you're encouraging. If you're going to, you know, if you if you have a, a a pest come into your green space, into your glass house, and you say, oh, "I know what gets that," and you go to a different country or whatever, and you, you know, I think it's the same with cane toads when you're trying to get rid of one pest, and now you've got an even worse pest. Just about to bring them up. <laughs> That's the that's the quintessential Australian IPM fail. Yeah, and it's happening all over the globe. You've got, um, I think there's an island somewhere in the Pacific which had a problem with one thing, so they introduced another uh, a type of hunting snail, and this hunting snail's just decimated everything. You yeah. know, isn't it from Africa because it's been taken out of its environment, and we do have that fantastic way of introducing things to each other um so a lot of, you know the plant hunters are guilty of this from 400 years ago they'd go to a different country so oh, this is amazing let's bring it back and then you end up with a a plant which um kills everything else <laughs> it's a beautiful beautiful thing to 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 love um gardening but it's just i mean i it it it's um if you get really passionate about it it it's it's um yeah it's a rabbit hole it's it's a real <laughs> you know it's a real sort of t- t- you eat the you eat the, the biscuit or you drink the the water and you see where you go with it you know it's it's one of those beautiful things mm-hmm. it really is a bit like that isn't it and um that's why i think a lot of those people who are sort of get on tiktok with really strong opinions um, sort of make a bit of a goose of themselves because they've sort of been doing it for maybe one year, uh, and then they think they know it all, and then they yeah. sort of get on there. And then people who've I been think... doing it for ten years to sit back and go, "That's wrong." <laughs> but you know, it's, it's interesting <laughs> having gone to horticultural college. You are taught a certain way and a certain thing to do. Um, and I then went into working on large estates, and I worked. My my head gardener, hello Brian, if you're listening. Um, he he was Harold Macmillan's old gardener who used to be the prime minister of the UK and stuff, and he knew his his um thing or two, and he quickly knocked all the stuff out that I'd learned at Horticulture <laughs> College because it's 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 from a book, and when I wrote my book, I specifically aimed at not writing it from from this i know everything um angle so i i asked people from kew gardens and from glasnevin in ireland and um i even emailed nasa to ask their advice on some things because they're growing um they're experimenting growing environments for for their mars missions 
you know, and, and it's about trying to glean as much knowledge and as much information from us across the globe. And I know I emailed Singapore Botanic Gardens because I worked there for a little while. And I emailed a couple of Australian um, botanic gardens. Unfortunately, they didn't get back to me, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's it's about having that knowledge and sharing it with people. And I think when you see people on, I don't really, I don't do TikTok, but when you see people on YouTube and they're saying this is this is the way to do it, they're only referring to what their knowledge is and what their specific small environment is. And I think that's where we go wrong is that we we dictate to people, this is what you have to do in your garden. But I've never been into people's gardens. I've never, I don't know what their soil's doing. I don't know their microclimate. I don't know anything about that space. And for me to stand on TikTok again and say, this is how you do this, it's going to defeat everyone, you know, because they're saying, well, it's not working in my garden. And that's the thing of microclimates. Your garden is a microclimate. It is your space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I was thinking about this recently, where I would love to be able to be in a position for someone to sort of just um, Zoom call me, and 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 you know, I I would go to their garden once and look at their garden and make notes, make extended notes of that garden, and then for whatever reason, they could then come back to me and say hi this is do you remember my space and i look at my notes and then it's it's you know it's a a a lot fairer way of doing it a lot fairer approach to gardening because to have that person on tiktok saying this is what you have to do and this is the plant that you know it doesn't work it's not it's not designed it's not that generalist no, and I think that the one I'm not on TikTok. I've only ever been on there a few times. But the one video that I always think about whenever I talk about this is um, one young lady sort of getting up there and talking about grass is bad. We should eradicate grass, just grass in general. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Grass, grass is a plant which is grown up with humans. Humans have been around for 2 million years and grasses have been around for pretty much the same. You know, so you watch Jurassic Park and all the animals are eating grasses and it's kind of like, yeah, no, they wouldn't (laughs) know what that was. You know, Um, and grass has got its place. In the UK, we've got a big thing where there was a no mow May. So everyone was saying, don't mow your lawns in May to let the wildflowers and the bees do their things and um it, it's it's got momentum and it's now going into no flow no mo june and no mo july and never mo again <laughs> but you've you've got this you've introduced this monoculture into your garden and grass is a beautiful thing and it's um it has its place and there are it, it you know to say grass is bad um, I used to know a chap, he's passed away now, he was in his 80s when I knew him, and he would be able to look at a blade of grass and tell you exactly what kind of grass it was. Mm. And and there are, in a lawn, there are, you know, tens of different types of grass in your lawn. It's not just rye grass or creeping bent or fescue. It's it's a, a, a multitude of grasses. There's a sort of American grass in there, which I love because the... the the flowering head is beautiful. It's called Timothy grass. 
but it's never you never see the flowering head because you're always mowing it. But grass is mm. grass is all right. It's better than artificial grass. Artificial grass is an absolute sin. It's you know, I think they're discovering now that there are bits of it that are carcinogenic. So you have to um, you have to balance these things. I think the big problem with grass is that we're we have to mow it, and by mowing it, we have to generally use um, carbon, you know, fuels unless you've got a push mower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're creating a, 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 a bit of a pollution issue there. But there you go. That's um, that's humans for you. We drive everywhere. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to wind tunnels now, Guy. What is a wind tunnel? Okay. From a garden point of view, you are, say, for example, you're facing south on the beach. Uh, uh, Melbourne so you've got the wind coming straight in at you if you've got um, a side entrance to your to your garden say a driveway or something and that goes straight through down the side of your house into the back garden and each side of your house there's a fence you are creating um, a funnel so that wind is going to blast through and it's the same with a hedge if a hedge has got gaps in it you're going to create um, a tunnelling effect. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if you are, for example, growing um, plants which you don't want to become overly um, bothered by humidity. So in the UK, we've got something called Alcamilla mollis. Uh, I don't know if you grow it in in Australia, but that is a notoriously... Um, bad plant for getting uh, a, a mould on it um, and it goes white and it looks very unsightly and then the leaves start going brown because it's not getting enough light and this this um, this fungus is attached and it's the same with some roses are very susceptible as well, it's a mildew um, so to have airflow in that environment is good because it means that that mildew hasn't got the right environment to actually settle on the leaves uh, and I was in a garden on Thursday last week, which had two Alcamilla mollis plants. One was in an area where the air was stagnant, and that was covered in white. And then literally 10 foot away, it was slightly more open, and the Alcamilla mollis was absolutely, you know, gleaming. And it was a lovely verdant green colour that, you know, it, it's a, it really healthy plant so just in that small space because there was a brick wall and because there was a uh, a wisteria and a seating area that the client had just been introduced which had another brick wall around it so that she could grow roses in it um that that alcamilla is entirely out of place now and it's just in this pocket of stagnant air so a wind tunnel is a, a is a an effect that's created by um, either accident or design where you are making the wind, for, forcing the wind through a basic, a small space. And everybody in Melbourne who's ever been in the city and walked down one of our famous laneways will know exactly what a wind tunnel is. <laughs> well, there you go. It's the same <laughs> as Chicago. It's the, you know, it's known as the Windy City. It's come straight off the, the water there and it, it, it's it's a 
yeah, there are ways of mitigating it. Um, I'm not sure that urban designers are quite ready to 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 do the 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 necessary in order to to mitigate it. I mean, planting trees, an avenue mm. of trees down, it would slow that wind down. Um, mm. People don't generally like to to walk um, under trees, and they're obsessed with lifting them, lifting them, and then you've you've created another wind tunnel because you've got the <laughs> The leaves above you, which are slowing the wind down, but then because you've lifted that tree by 10, 15 foot, you've got this 10, 15 foot gap where you're just letting the wind race through. So it's going to make it even worse. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, guy. <laughs> yeah. But in that respect, you could plant things like, um, you know, some of the miscanthus grasses. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You're lowering the wind down further down so it's at human height because some of these miscanthus i mean i know that there's there's some that grow three or four meters but they're incredibly messy and they bend and, and break and things but you know you could grow um miscanthus senesis and that will grow to sort of two foot with a foot with a pink flower or a white flower and they're quite beautiful and that would slow your that would slow the airflow down Something like a miscanthus as well. The beautiful bushy grasses look really nice in the wind too. So that's probably a beautiful plant to put there. Oh yeah, and if you staggered it down the street, then you're you're not you're you're creating you're not stopping the flow of the wind, but you're you're you know the the most annoying thing would be for people because they can't walk in a straight line, and people do like to walk in straight lines. It would be kind of like shooting a gurney, you know, like a karcher, high-pressure hose through like a towel or something. You know, the, after it hits through the towel, it's dispersed and becomes much yeah. slower in pressure. Very much so, yeah. And I think urban designers have really got to start planning for these things rather than just going for the same old, same old, which isn't thought. It, there's no thought in it. It's like, oh, right, okay, I want to go down to the garden nursery and ask them what they've got, and then they'll say, okay, I've got these, and then that's it. And th- there's no thought to it. So from a, from that point of view, to you know, you get a tree, you plant it in, someone else complains that the branches are too low, they lift it, and you end up not having the, 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 the effect that you want. Whereas with a grass, that's just there, and it's, it's a permanent... And it's also a lovely sound as well, because it will reduce the, the level of sound from the you know the noise of the cars and it will also absorb um, a lot of the pollution. So I guess this is the same again as the effects we're talking about with a shelter belt. Yeah, very much so. And it, it, this, it's a, a shelter belt for humans rather than for, but it's creating another microclimate and that microclimate for your lanes in, in Melbourne, that's a microclimate that you, you know, if you're all finding it uncomfortable, then you need to change it. You need to think on a wider scale and think, okay, how can we approach this with plants that are going to be adapted for that space and that's going to enhance our living? Absolutely. Speaking of enhancing our living, anybody who's ever had to deal with um, possums or mice or something like that is going to want to pay attention to this one. So what is a fruit cage? <laughs> okay right um a fruit cage is i guess on the on the what you were saying about earlier is in the shade shade house it's the same principle you're basically building a 
a structure it you can get them online for very cheap the problem is that if you've got any type type of wind then they're, they're going to break made and they're made of hollow steel um generally chinese mm. not very expensive but it's basically a um if you imagine um okay a great white I, I'm, I'm using a, a bit of a random analogy here but if you've ever seen people going swimming with great white sharks <laughs> it's the same kind of principle you've got a <laughs> you've got a solid structure and then you put a net around it um and that net will prevent um birds coming in it depends what gauge the net is you don't want it too th- you don't want the gauge too narrow because then you end up not having any sun through um and then a, with a skirt of uh chicken wire a very thin chicken wire in order to prevent things like rabbits getting in biting through um and mice can get through a gap the size of a pencil apparently because they can fold their skull bones so you have to think of that so it's it's kind of uh uh, an all-in approach to trying to protect the fruit that you've got in your cage whatever fruit you're growing in the uk we like growing things like gooseberries blackberries raspberries um white white currants black currants and generally the birds will have them before we get to them you know as soon as they're ripe the birds are in there eating them they've been watching them for months well they just sit there and and you know they tend to get up a lot earlier than humans. So, you know, well, you're still lying in bed having your coffee. There's a bird out there saying, thanks very much. I'm eating your fresh fruit. <laughs> that one is exactly ripe today. Yeah. And they are incredibly adept at knowing these things, whereas we have to go and look at them and say, okay, that one might be, you know, they're, they're, they're in tune to it. Um, and, and, you know that's that's their thing i mean if you think that birds have existed a lot longer than humans on the planet then they're sort of geared up for this kind of thing so a fruit cage is basically a a space that you've built and put a net over it and and designed it so that you've got a doorway in there um that that you know will protect it from the majority of pests you can also do it over your veg patch as well you know Mm. but um that's that's to stop things like uh, butterflies or stuff that comes in and eats your cabbages. We've done that with our grow bags. Some of them we just put netting around because of the cabbage butterflies and because of the possums. And yeah. I guess it's the same thing. The fruit cage, I guess, is a very similar sort of thing to a fruit bag. So you sort of tie a bag around your um, around your plums or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. I, th- I mean, I don't know. I don't know if possums can eat through nylon netting. Um, in the UK, we have an issue that, I mean, rabbits will just eat. They'll even eat through um, galvanised metal if it's got a plastic coating on. Wow. Our possums are pretty dumb. I think, you know, even if you don't put a top on it, if they can't reach over the top, they just sort of walk on. It's the mice that are the real problem. Yeah. So you'd need to put um, you'd need to put a skirt of wood around the bottom of that and dig it down a bit in order for that to not, um, you know, for the mice not to sort of try and dig under it. Um, I remember once we, for a company that I was working for, we installed um, 
a lawn in a house that the, the whole area was was troubled by moles. I don't know if you have them in Australia, but they're sort of underground dwelling mammals. And they, they sort of dig holes all over the lawns and ruin them. We've got wombats, but they're not, they're not really a pest. We love them. <laughs> but it's, it's a tiny thing. I mean, it's, the, the, the moles are literally um, half the size of your hand. They're tiny little things, but they, 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 eat, they eat worms. They, you know, they're, not, they're not a pest as such, but they just destroy by, by their tunnelling. They're, they're like sort of tiny gophers. Um, so we laid this lawn with chicken wire underneath because the 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 owner of the house was just so angry at this mole problem that he had and um then we fenced the entire garden with chicken wire and we dug the chicken wire down and uh went away and thought brilliant and we came back a week later and it snowed and we found that the mole had walked literally all around the garden to find a gap in the fence and then got in and was in the garden. So they will find their way in, you know? So you have to sort of, uh, you have to, as in, as in my book, and I recommend this to anyone who, who has a problem with pests is to read Sun Tzu, the art of war (laughs) and, and, and really sort of go, okay, this is, this is, I'm in their space. This, a garden is not, I think people make the mistake of looking at nature and saying, right, we're in this space. We've created this space. This is our control. It's not. We are, we are effectively saying to nature, I'm coming into your, your space and I'm trying to control you and nature will fight back. So you have to look at it from, from that point of view. You have to really think, okay, I, if a, if a, if a a mouse is going to behave like this, how can I, mitigate against that behavior how can i stop that mouse bothering for that i'm uh, i'm having a battle with rabbits in one garden and um i'd successfully gotten 99 percent of the rabbits out of that garden apart from one rabbit which kept on coming back in and it was just absolutely insistent and now it's uh, unfortunately it's pregnant and it's just had its litter so I'm now back to square one, but I've now created this fenced enclosure for the rabbits to be safe. So I, you know, I'm I'm uh, now thinking right. I'm going to have to call in a chat with ferrets and see what I can do with those. But it, you know, it's this. There is a. Uh, you you can never. I always say you can never win against nature. You can agree to a draw, and be happy with that. Yeah, and try and design a win-win. Yeah, it's it's. I think you know you have to accept there's always going to be losses. I think you always have to say, okay, that that. It's it's it, it's not a. If you try and defeat what you know, if you're going to try and, I think you need to minimise your risk with mice. You can't get rid of mice. Mice are, are always going to be there, and there's always going to be something a moment where you you become overconfident with what your what you've developed. So, a fruit cage from your point of view, you've made this amazing fruit cage with a a gate that snaps back as soon as you leave, and you do something else, and you do something. But you know, there's a moment where you're going to not think or not, you know, on a 
on polytunnels, which is another thing that the in the UK use. It's developed by the US Marines out in Wake Island, I think. Um, people strim. They cut the grass right up against it and they wreck the, the polytunnel because the, the, the strimmer line goes straight through the plastic. So you put a metal skirt up. Now, a metal skirt would work well against mice because mice obviously can't climb over the metal and they can't bite through it and they can't you know and if you dig that metal skirt down that's going to prevent them from digging under but just be aware that zinc can poison plants so you have to think about how that zinc leaching into the soil is going to affect that where does zinc does zinc come out leach out of stainless steel or what does zinc leach out no it's just a lot of the time when we use um steel uh, a lot of the a lot of agricultural implements are um or agricultural um metal work is has got zinc as a car uh, as a casing because it's less um you know it doesn't doesn't rust as much so things like metal skirts if you went along to a shop and said have you got any metal sheet metal they might offer you a zinc covering and you have to be aware that that isn't clever because it leaks in the soil. So if you put the just stainless steel into the soil, that will be, that will be fine. Right. So you mentioned polytunnels there. Can you just briefly paint a picture of what that looks like for our listeners and why okay. someone would make that polytunnel? A polytunnel is a cheaper version of a greenhouse. It's um, based on um, – Basically, you can get them on a large scale or small scale. You can get them as a walk-in, which is it's basically hoops of metal covered in a plastic pure polyurethane sheeting. Um, and you need a door at either end to let the airflow come through. Otherwise, you're going to end up with issues because you haven't got the option of windows in it. Mm. Um, and it's, 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 it's a growing space, uh, which will help. Um, you grow things in environments that are alternate would your options would be limited um, so in the UK they're great because we have such odd weather patterns um, <laughs> there is a chap if you look if you look online there's a chap who did some experiments in 19 in the 1970s on um, solar greenhouses which he used the same sort of polytunnel structure and he double lined it and he was growing food in the middle of winter up in the sierra nevada mountains at sort of seven thousand meters or something you know so it is viable and they are incredibly fascinating um tools for a gardener to use and in the in the same respect you could use the same hoop structure to create a shade house or to create a fruit cage um so you know it's a multi multi-use space if if thought out properly hmm. obviously if you're covering uh your plants in a plastic tunnel we're going to be using clear plastic we're not going to be using black plastic or something like that i mean i hope no no yeah yeah it's, an, it's actually an <laughs> opaque it's an opaque polyurethane plastic okay so you say opaque, so is there a bad re- like is there a reason why you wouldn't use completely clear, or is that just what it comes in? It just comes as that it's not it's not it's it's it, in a greenhouse you need to shade anyway, 
So you either put in, um, mm. you either put up a, a blinds or you paint it with white because the heat of the sun, the 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 you know prevents scorch and things. So having this opaque polyurethane is actually beneficial because it means you don't have to then think about shading. You don't have to think. It lets in about eighty five percent of the UV that you need for plants to grow healthily. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, no, they're great spaces. Just be aware that because of the nature of plastic, they um, encourage things like molds and mildews and things. Hmm. Gotcha. So are there any other microclimates or structures or other methods worth mentioning that we haven't done so yet? Uh, not, no, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, not off the top of my head. I think we've pretty much covered everything. I think, <laughs> I mean, the urban environment is always going to be different from the countryside, just purely because the urban environment is, is got a lot more dense population. And, and as you say, walking up your avenues in, in Melbourne creates issues with wind tunneling. So any gardens off that is, is going to be a different microclimate from, something a few blocks back does that make sense mm, yeah. um and well, I, you know as i say you've always just got to think of the space that you're in and think of the wider the wider climate and then look at how that wider climate is is um is in your space because it's not going to be the same as even your next door neighbor well said is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about um well, I mean, as I say, I <laughs> I have a, a, a book out if anyone's interested in, in reading about it. Um, it is very much um, Northern Hemisphere based, but it, it gives you the basic premise of what I've been talking about um, called A Gardener's Guide to Protected Growing. You can find it on the Crowwood Press website at the moment, um, and it will be on Amazon. And it's... it's it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and, and uh, imagine the gardens that I'm not seeing in Australia. <laughs> Something I wanted to mention at the start was just how bloody brilliant this book is because, oh, mate, like this is not a book that you're going to buy and read once. This is a book to keep on your bookshelf for years and consult over many, many, many seasons. Thank you, thank you. That's that's a a a, 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 a brilliant thing to say. <laughs> I'm astounded mm. by that. I, I really, really tried hard to write this book with everyone in mind, and not just my own small-minded point of view. I, I really did approach it from a different perspective. That's right. So I think it's something that's relevant for me as a gardener who's been around for 10 years, but also if you're not very good at gardening, even you can pick up this book and still pretty much hit the ground running. So if you're just starting up a garden, um, you know, you've never touched a, you've never touched a trowel in your life. You, this book is for you as well. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I, I meant by it. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Cheers so much for a great episode, mate. No, thank you. That's been brilliant. Thank you. If you use your noggin, you can change the microclimate so you can grow plants you wouldn't otherwise be able to. Check the show notes to purchase Guy's comprehensive book on microclimates and protected growing, Gardener's Guide to Protected Growing. 
do yourself a favour and grab the physical copy so it's never far from sight. Follow the Plants Grow Here podcast on your favourite listening app and turn on notifications so you don't miss out on weekly episodes.